Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 10. In this episode, we are going to focus on the idea of education and maturity. And I'm really excited about these topics because I think they span so many disciplines and aspects of the human experience and the challenges we're facing in our society today as individuals and within families and communities. The interview I have today is with Noor Syed, and she is a leader in homeschooling education and offers training and principles and coaching and things like that for people who are doing homeschooling. So homeschooling is a a niche, and what we talk about in this interview as well is that it's the point of our conversation is not so much about the format or specific packages of anything, but the idea of education itself. And this also led us into a conversation about the importance, the importance of attachment principles. And we both were very inspired by an expert who has been in the field of attachment and developmental science for decades, and that is Gordon Neufeld. And he was somebody that was one of my first trainings, uh, very intensive trainings as a school counselor. Through his training, I had many insights that paralleled with my intuitions as well, working with kids for many, many years, and then continuing that on with parenting workshops and teacher workshops and continuing to work with families throughout the decades. And I've always returned to his teachings as one of those foundations for that. And a big part of what he teaches is that insight is the most important thing that we can hope to spark in somebody. And this ties directly into the idea of mindset. So they're, to me, very similar principles. It's less about immediately going to these how-tos or quick fixes or formulas, but actually helping people understand on a very deep level the the reasons for why people behave the way they do and seeing behavior, seeing humans, seeing 
all these different things that we do in a new light. And that is the foundation of change. It's that mindset shift or that insight that then sparks new behavior. So it's going from that inside insight outwards rather than trying to get people to change behavior without helping them have those insights and those mindset shifts. And what's so beautiful about this developmental process that I'm going to talk about in terms of maturity, which is a key, key concept of Gordon Neufeld's teachings, but attachment processes in general and developmental science in general, what's beautiful about these theories is they tie so intimately into systems thinking and systems dynamics. So we, within systems thinking and systems dynamics, we talk about the goal of a system. And it's very important to think about the purpose and the goal of a system in order to understand all the different changes and adaptations and different things that need to occur for that system to constantly achieve its goals and become very, very resilient. So before we go into the interview, I want to cover the maturation process or the developmental process that um, has been one of those foundations that I think can be really helpful for us to think about, not just in terms of child development, but first of all, what we may have been missing as children, what young generations right now are missing from society and from the family structures that they're a part of, community structures, what education might be missing out on. And having some of these insights, I think, is helpful for us to potentially know how to change the way we are headed. I think maturity is one of the most important concepts for us to think about in society today, because I think it is lacking. I think that the majority of what we see in terms of behaviors, especially when it comes to social interactions, how we are interacting with other humans and the entire global system is immature. And what I mean by immature is not a judgment, but it's a a less complex way of being. And it's important. It's a starting point. But as we get older and have more data to work with, it's essential for us to mature in order for this entire system to become more adaptive and responsive and resilient. First, just the term education, it comes from the root of educare, which means to train or to mold, to lead out or draw out. So it's about offering the right conditions and the right types of interactions and insights to help draw out the wisdom and the maturity and all these resilient processes from a person rather than forcing or controlling or trying to constantly manipulate or use behaviorism type of tactics where you think that one stimulus will always get a response. So you try to use these one-size-fit-all types of standardized procedures in order to try to get people to do things that you think they're supposed to do. 
So we are instead thinking about cultivating the right conditions for these processes to emerge. Now, within the developmental process, there are three distinct inner processes that occur. And these processes are are spontaneous, meaning they don't you don't have to pre-plan them and they, they emerge, but they're not inevitable, meaning that if you don't have the right conditions, then they are stunted or restricted or thwarted in some way. These three, I'll just do a quick list of them and then I'm going to go into each of them. The first is the emergent process. And this gives rise to the capacity to function as a separate person and to develop a sense of agency. And I'm taking a lot of this from a book by Deborah McNamara, if I'm saying her name correctly, called Rest, Play, Grow. And she was one of the protégés or students of Gordon Neufeld for many years. So he entrusted her with putting out this information into a very recent book that compiles thousands of hours of his workshops. So there's the emergent process, which gives rise to our capacity to function as a separate being and that we have agency to separate in that way. The second is the adaptive process which enables a person to adapt to life circumstances and overcome adversity. This is really, really key. And I think this is where a lot of misunderstanding comes from when it comes to being caregivers and leaders and models and parents and teachers and that kind of thing. So we're going to go into that. And then the integrative process is what helps a person become a social being with a capacity to engage in relational dynamics and be a part of something bigger without losing their own personal self, their selfhood. These three things, the emergent, adaptive, and integrative process, is this journey of maturation. But they are not things that will happen inevitably, like I said. So we need to have adults, mature adults, and the key is mature, cannot just be any kind of adult, because if the adults are immature, reactive, narcissistic in any way, then these conditions are not going to be met. So we need these kinds of role models and leaders and caregivers who are mature in their own way, self-regulating, co-regulating, to create these kinds of developmental conditions in young children who then obviously grow up and contribute to the next generation of these caregivers and models and teachers and leaders. So this topic is also going into the realm of intergenerational processes of how do we continue to improve what we do for the next generation, which then improves that for the next generation. First, the emergent process. This is the way that we become viable as a separate being. And it 
is part of this movement from dependence to independence. So we have seen this in many of the theories about regulation, that as we are immature beings, we must have a caregiver who co-regulates with us, who is able to actually help us regulate our nervous system and even build the brain architecture needed for executive functioning and these kinds of self-regulation mechanisms. The emergent process is this gradual, dynamic process that occurs over time incrementally where we move away from being so dependent on someone else to give us what we need, the attention, the validation, the feelings, the ability to soothe ourselves. We move away from dependence from another being to independence on that, which because we are mammals, we never completely lose our need for others. It's not, we're not saying that, but we are saying that as you become an autonomous being and you have your own personhood, you are able to find, whether it's through multiple other social mechanisms or internal mechanisms, such as your own mind and your attentional processes on what thoughts you focus on, how you decide to get up to move instead of stay still, etc. Those are those processes that are for us to learn how to do for ourselves and self-regulate, to become autonomous and separate so that we can then enter, re-enter, and you'll hear me talk about that in, in a second, the integrative process again, where we have ourselves, we are our own entity. We can then go back into social settings and not lose that integrity of who we are and that very self-regulating ability to know what we need, what we can do for ourselves to induce and initiate the internal states that we desire and obtain the resources we need to function as healthy, viable entities. Now, what's interesting with this is within this emergent process, play is actually a key part of this. Play is a fascinating process that is mammalian. There are many researchers that study mammalian play, and they look at it as training for the unexpected. It's a way of training and creating simulations for spontaneous and emergent, flexible, adaptive responding to events. But what's beautiful about play is it removes the actual real-life consequences so that multiple pathways can be explored and experimented with. And this allows for a lot more just possibility and exploration of all these different kinds of moves that can be made within these simulations that help induce very responsive, flexible, open kind of problem solving and including the skeletal muscular system within that, the sensory motor aspect of that, that there is some movements, whether it's, it can be dialogue, but it can also be actual movements where we are engaging our sensory motor musculoskeletal systems in order to play with, which means experiment with, explore many, many different types of moves we can make and see how those play out. See how A leads to B leads to C, then try another configuration of that. So play is part of that emergent process. And this is something that I think is very missing from education, the education system, 
and from people's understanding of what kids need. There's a spontaneity of play that is really important for kids to engage in. Play also allows them to really see their own preferences and their likes and dislikes and what captures their attention, what they are sensitive to and notice. And this is all part of that individuation process. And so that's the, that's the emergent part where as long as the adults and the caregivers in that child's life can create the developmental conditions, which is the basic needs being met, and that includes safety, including emotional, psychological safety. If the adults in that child's life can create that kind of safe harbor, and that also includes attention and care and presence, when those needs are met, it's like the tank gets filled for the child, the child is satiated and has those levels of their experience fulfilled and met. Because of that, their system can now enter the world of play. And that world of play is key. It's a simulation for real life. It's a simulation. It's a training for the unexpected. There's a spontaneity to play that is very important. Things are not laid out. There can be guidelines and rules and, you know, rules of engagement, just like there is in real life social dynamics. And then within that, many different things can be explored and experimented. So I just, I'm really trying to highlight the importance of play as a simulation and that in order for children to play, there needs to be a feeling of a safe harbor within to do that, a place where they, they can rest because their other needs have been met. If those other needs haven't been met, they will be in a constant process of seeking. And that was a a very big part of my training with this kind of training early on was to really understand that when the attachment needs, those needs of care and safety and and the basic needs and the mammalian need for co-regulation and that very present kind of attention, which we talk about in the interview, when those are not met, a child is constantly hungry, hungry for attention, hungry for validation, hungry for being noticed, being attuned to, being understood. And when they're in that hungry mode, it's like they are hunting for it. They're seeking it constantly. And when it's not fulfilled in a a regular, consistent way by key people, because as, as mammals, there's that affiliative process that where these kinds of needs need to be met by people who we build a track record with, because that level of trust is what really lets the nervous system kind of put its vigilance down in order for, for these processes to emerge. So when those are not met, there is this constant seeking of trying to get other people to please or give the kind of attention that just, it's like an empty tank. It just a bottomless pit that can never get filled. And that would be something that I feel I'm seeing a lot 
I think in all generations we have seen that, and then it's just magnified more now by social media. But this trying to fill a tank that has to be filled by key players in our life and in very, to me, almost sacred ways for these maturation processes to happen, where there is just high, high quality, doesn't have to necessarily be high quantity, but high quality presence and attunement and trust building within smaller circles and groups. And so specifically the family, but this can be also learning communities as well, or other kinds of communities. When those, when that tank is filled, when those needs, those very mammalian, universally human, primal, primitive needs are met. And so not just talking about the shelter and the food, but going very much into this realm of the attachment and affiliation and psychological safety. When those needs are met, that person can allow themselves to become more of their own being, an autonomous being that can play, that can experiment, that can think for themselves and isn't constantly seeking for others to fill them up, for others to validate them, for others to say that they are worth anything. And that is part of what I feel is occurring in a lot of people's lives today, especially young people, where they are constantly displaying themselves in order to try to get those hits of those neurochemicals that actually really, really need to be met by these relational harbors within the family and within small communities in order for this kind of process of becoming a separate being to emerge as an autonomous person in order for those to occur. The second process of maturation is the adaptive process. And this is very much the core of how we become resilient and adaptable and resourceful, especially when it comes to challenges and adversity and less than ideal conditions. This is something that as caregivers, and the adults in in the lives of children. This is something that we also help with in terms of the maturation process. And it's, in a sense, a later phase of the maturation process because in the beginning phases, we need, for example, newborns need to have all their needs met. They don't need to face adversity when it comes to having shelter and safety and basic nutrition. There's a foundation that needs to be laid first for them to become a viable entity, a viable living organism. And so that's the the mammalian approach with that is through a family type of structure, a an affiliative type of bond. With the adaptive process, this is where we start to see the idea of saying no 
and where we see some power struggles also occurring, where tantrums start to happen, when agendas are thwarted. Something interesting that comes up in emotion research is an approach that, and I talk about this in my book, it's called the component process model of emotions, and it has to do with states of affect. So meaning, are we aroused? Like, is there an arousal excitatory component? Is it more in an inhibitory, down-regulated type of state? And then the other very important part of what we're calling affect. So there's a flavor of it's an approach or avoidance, like aversion, a like or dislike, plus the arousal, up or down regulated state, a whole configuration of different aspects together. And with that, there's an, always an evaluation of if we are capable of coping with the outcome of what it is that's that we have just perceived with our senses. If there's a sense of agency towards that, that we can do something about it, or not. These are different things that can turn up and down volumes and flavors in a sense of all these different components that go into an internal state. What's interesting with that is when it comes to this idea of anger, which we associate with a mobilized state of some sort, there is a fight aspect to it where there is blood flow to the skeletal muscles, especially involved in limb movement, and that that is based on this idea that that there was a goal and it has been obstructed and the resulting affective state is related to what we would call anger. So feeling like something or somebody is obstructing our goal is very intimately tied to our feelings of anger. I think that's very important for us to think about when we are feeling angry about different people or things in our life, to think about how we are perceiving them as an obstruction to a goal, and then to actually think about what that goal truly is. And there's complexity to that I'm not going to get into in this episode. But this is a part of what we see in these developmental stages. And I am talking about children through most of this, but If we don't mature, if we don't have the developmental conditions for this journey of maturation, we can get stuck. And Neufeld actually calls this stuckness. We can get stuck in immaturity. And I would say that there's a lot of immaturity in our world and human society and a stuckness at these different phases where there was stuff that got restricted and constricted through the different conditions people have been through. So there is this idea of anger and anger is not necessarily a bad thing because it's mobilizing. There is a sense that the person is able to somehow remove that obstruction. So we can go about that in very maladaptive ways where we perceive someone as an obstruction to a goal, but they're actually not. That can come in the form of blaming someone for disrupting our internal state when in fact there might be multiple paths to get to that internal state where we don't have to 
you know, blame another person or a thing for that. So that's one aspect of it. But anger is not necessarily a bad thing because there's still a level of agency when it comes to anger. That is in contrast to helplessness, where our perceived ability to cope and our perceived sense of agency is not there. So we may sense an obstruction to a goal, but we don't actually believe we have the capacity to move around it or remove it. And that can lead to resignation, which is more of that immobilized withdrawal or hopeless and helpless kind of victim mode in a sense. So anger is not a bad thing. And it's something we have to understand as well as part of this maturation process is that it is a very big part of feeling like an agenda has been thwarted or obstacles have been put in the way of what someone wants. And so we really see that with children. And the reason why is that they are much more now oriented. They don't have yet the architecture, those prefrontal features for long-term decision-making, controlling of impulses, weighing of pros and cons, thinking of future consequences. And so they're driven a lot more by the different drives and the neurochemicals and all those kinds of things that are for short-term gratification and for now. And it's part of why we love them. We love seeing the world through their eyes because there is that now-ness to them where they don't aren't thinking about all the other consequences to their actions. And that is the, the beauty of their playfulness and their joy because it's uninhibited and even their love, their ability to love. There's a sense of uninhibitedness to it because they're not thinking of how it plays out yet in the future. So there's a beauty to that aspect. The flip side of it is that because they are driven by that and it's, for example, sugar and fat and different types of stimuli can be very rewarding in the short term. There's evolutionary reasons behind that. But if we are thinking strategically long term, those may not be the best options. So having ice cream for dinner is not necessarily the best option, but it tastes really good because it has high fat, high sugar content as one example. So children, because of their, the development of the brain and the lack of maturity of some of those complex networks, they may want things and they want them now. And there's a lack of perspective taking of how other people may have other goals and how there just may be other kind of perspectives and moves that are made in other, by other people and by the world in general. So what we will see a lot of times is that they may have an idea that they want something and they want it now. They want that toy. They want that cookie, whatever it is. If that agenda in their mind gets thwarted, there will often be anger. That can come out in the form of aggression and tantrums. We have to understand that this is a part of the maturation process. It's a very natural affective state of a human, and it's not a bad thing. If we do something called displace the emotion, however, in the child, and we punish immediately or get angry back or do something that puts them into an over-aroused state, in the middle of one of their states where they feel like their agenda has been thwarted, then what we're doing is we are displacing the emotion. And what that means is that instead of them just getting in touch with what it is that's upsetting them, we've now made it so we may have alarmed them or put them in a state of distress or shame. 
And that actually now has just modified their emotion. So it's not actually about that initial thing that they were upset about. It's about your reaction to it. (laughs) So this is a really complex topic. And I'm not going to get too much deeper into that just at the moment. What I want to just highlight here is, first of all, that when it comes to this process, when it comes to a child being upset, for example, and this can also be for adult children, so the people in our life who have not necessarily matured, that we can't, you can't teach adaptiveness. You can't teach resilience and you can't inject it as a thing. You can't inject resilience into a person or system. You can't inject adaptiveness. The only way to get to that place, the only way to get to adaptation is a challenge, is something where whatever it is that was going to happen isn't going to happen. Whatever condition or agenda or whatever that was is not met. And through that, then the navigation happens, the navigation and maneuvering of new techniques, of new strategies. So that's one aspect. So it's adaptation can only occur through this idea of challenge or conflict or struggle or whatever you want to call that, not getting needs met, not having the agenda met. When we are doing that for children, we are doing it for a reason. We are setting them up for adaptation. When we say no to them having certain things that we have used our prefrontal features for. So we're not reacting from that limbic mammalian place of just being angry because they're angry and we think they're a jerk. We are keeping our sights set on the long game, on the long-term plan. That is the role of the adult, of really using those prefrontal features, that logic, that complexity to do that. And so when we are saying no, we're saying it from that place, from that very intentional place of thinking of long-term. And then the other very special part, which will also come back into, into phase three of maturation in terms of integration We as adults, as leaders, as models, what we're also doing when we say no or we don't allow certain things based on that very intentional place of long-term, long-game strategic planning, future projection, when we're doing that, we also still hold the perspective of the child and we're still very cognizant, we're very understanding and deliberate in our understanding that They don't see it that way. They don't have the prefrontal features. They don't have the ability to long-term project. And so when our boundaries, when our no, when our whatever that is that we're putting in place for them, it's coming from a place of our intention for the long-term, but also our perspective taking that they don't see it that way. So it doesn't have to come from this energy, from this place of that kid's being a jerk that kid's just a monster, that kid's whatever. It's coming from the place of understanding very much from a developmental perspective, from a neurological perspective, that they see it differently. And that is huge. And we're going to get back to that in in phase three because it's really, really important for social dynamics. So that's the adaptive process. And one other part of the adaptive process is not just the having the challenge and having that end of the line or the thwarted plans in order to become adaptive to it and respond to it flexibly. It's not only that, the other very important part of the maturation process when it comes to this and what we're laying the groundwork for, for especially children, but again, this can be, we attempt to apply this to the adult children in our life as well, 
is that we are also training them to understand that they will survive not having an agenda met exactly precisely the way they thought it would happen. That there is, they are able to emotionally, psychically, psychologically survive when certain expectations are met and they're able to maneuver around it. And they can survive the very strong emotional arousal that might happen, which I've already explained about the the anger or sometimes that helplessness and that immobilization that can happen. They're able to survive that internal state dysregulation in a sense that happens when certain agendas aren't met. So that's the other important part of the adaptive process. And in the next section, we will talk about the integrative process. The third maturation process is the integrative process. And this is what transitions a child into becoming a true social being who is mature and responsible. And this requires a certain level of brain development and emotional maturity, and specifically in areas and systems of the brain that are more complex. They go beyond black and white thinking. A very, very important feature of this is that a person is able to take into account more than one perspective, not just one's own perspective, but that someone else may have another perspective. Theory of mind, and then it goes beyond that as well. So theory of mind is the idea that a child turns on this awareness that someone else has like a literally a physically different perspective than they do and that they have their own viewpoint. But this goes beyond that and goes into an appreciation of deeper context and the feelings and states of others. But a very, very important part of this, and this is why that emergent aspect is so important as that foundation And then the adaptive process is so important for maturation because in this integrative process, it's not just about being a social being, but it's about being able to be a separate self in the midst of many other people. So it's being able to actually hold on to our point of view, to our integrity in that sense, like a psychic integrity, an emotional physical integrity of ourselves and to even be able to disagree with or have boundaries with somebody else and still hold a sense of regulation and togetherness. This is in contrast to cloning or blending or fusing into others, whether it's group identities or another person, becoming amorphous and no longer really having that sense of our own values, our own identity. And it also counteracts narcissism in a way, which is where someone is so absorbed by their own image or by their own feelings and what they need in a moment 
that they are incapable of allowing for someone else to have needs or values or whatever that is. And this social integration, this integrative process allows for a sense of moral reasoning for a person to be able to have a perspective of us or we rather than just me. And that's very important for secure relationships where a person begins to put the relationship above their own insecurities or their own unfulfilled needs. And it doesn't mean that we don't express them. So again, this is where it's this this integrated process. We have our own values and what we need, but we don't make that completely dominate without taking other people's perspectives. And we also don't completely abandon, self-abandon in order to try to blend or fuse or submit ourselves to somebody else. And when I talk about the importance of this social mastery in a sense, it's not just this idea of kindness or compassion. Those can be aspects. When it comes to social mastery, there's also an ability to persuade and influence because when a person is able to truly understand other people's perspectives and hold their own, and keep that more integrative idea of us and a we in mind that allows that person to also become a leader and a model because they're able to tune into what other people need. And we need people to do that in that very mature way where they've gone through that maturation process because this also helps them become social masters on a playing field where there are other people who have understood how to play some of those games, but they're doing it in more of a manipulative sense or in that narcissistic kind of way where there is uh, attempts to influence and persuade others, but for reasons that are really just about fulfilling one's own needs without thinking about that bigger picture. So it's helpful for us to think about how we nurture and cultivate and create these developmental conditions for this integrative process. And another just layer to think about in terms of that, whether we are models or leaders or caregivers or just people who are in society and we know that we are contributing to what the next generation is going to be a part of, is that we are talking about in this episode and in this process that I'm talking about, we are focusing a bit more on children and that those developmental processes. But again, what's important for us to think about is that some of the people we are interacting with, and that can include ourselves as well, we may not have had all of these conditions cultivated in really healthy ways for us to move through those processes. So those are things that we can still consider for ourselves now to reflect on, is how do I improve and cultivate my own emergent process where I really get in touch with my individuality, my likes and dislikes, my integrity, my values, myself as a separate entity that's capable of self-regulating, 
being whole on my own, not being completely codependent on somebody else? And then how do I mature into that adaptive process of really allowing for myself to flex and navigate obstacles and challenges that come into my path? And then how do I become that integrative being where I'm holding a higher perspective that's not just my own, it includes other people. And all of this is very in line with the idea of secure attachment. And secure attachment is something that affects adult-child relationships, but also is very much a pillar of intimate relationships later. So what we do with children is also something that influences them later for their own intimate relationships, as well as deep friendships and just the way they are in society. So these three processes are core principles for us to become resilient, healthy, conscious, and contributing beings who are able to really tune into what we need, but also be of value to others in our relationships. And being able to get in touch with that creates a sense of psychological safety because when we know that we are able to tune into others as well as ourselves, we are creating a sense of safety within a relationship because both people are able to find ways to get their needs met or multiple people if we're talking about a group. So those are the three processes of maturation. And in my episode with Noor, we touch on a lot of these ideas that come from these attachment type of principles and this maturation process. And Noor will talk a little bit more about her story and how she got there. But she did start as an engineer and she was working on IT solutions and development and processes and things like that. And then as she became a mother, she ended up focusing more of her efforts on educating her children. And so we will hear more about that process. And I think it's a really beautiful conversation. We cover a lot of depth and we really go into the philosophy in a sense, the mindset of what education is really for and what we're trying to do for ourselves, for the next generation, for our families, for humanity. When we think about learning and when we think about the role that the adults play in this world. And I think that is a really powerful part of this episode and of my work that has been around for a while, which is the role of the adults and particularly how we foster mature adults so that the world becomes a safer place. Because the more of us, the more of the grown-ups, the more of the prefrontal cortex models, if you haven't heard my TEDx talk, that's what I talk about, the more of us that are here and are really intentional about modeling maturity, modeling self-regulation, modeling what Neufeld talks about in terms of maturity is not having untempered expression and untempered emotions. 
emotions and expression are powerful and beautiful things, but there is an aspect of us that has the potential to be even more intentional about how we use some of that energy. So it was a joy to talk with Noor, who is a leader in her field, and I hope you enjoy the interview. So thank you, Noor, for joining me on this podcast. Um, I I love so much of the messaging that you put out into the world for kids' learning potential, their unique genius, and a really big part that I think we both resonate on is how important the grown-ups are in the world of children and how important it is for us to have a certain level of ability for self-leadership, self-regulation, open-mindedness, wonder for the world, curiosity, expanding beyond the four walls of the classroom. So I think we resonate. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot appreciate this opportunity enough because I've been inspired by your work, so much of what you do, like it's kind of like, you know, like a secret wish. I wish I could pursue this and pursue that. And as an adult, we have, I mean, so much of my life is like motherhood and just revolves around my kids. And um, I don't necessarily see that as, you know, like a deprivation because, you know, it's generally perceived as, oh, you're a stay-at-home mom. It's an incredible gift to be able to do that. But of course, I have that other side of me uh, that longs to go and pursue things without having to consider this other aspect of my life. But I can (laughs) live that through people like you, you know, who are so invested in the science and who are sincerely pursuing this and bringing together different sciences. So I'm incredibly grateful for how generously you share what you do, your insights, I I love learning from people who are doing this uh, from this uh, position where you're just learning it as a scientist, as Mm -hmm. a, as a person who's trying to make sense of it. Neutral, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're you're welcome. Thank you. So I would love to hear uh, your journey, just whatever, whatever you want to share until your point where you are today. Well, I did not consider home education, homeschooling as a lifestyle choice or back then, you know, you don't even think of it as a lifestyle choice in the first place. You think of it as like homeschooling is like, oh, the kid is home and then they are schooling. Like, (laughs) how does that even work? Right. I'm talking about like 2012. So this is growing and becoming more and more acceptable now. And a lot of young moms are excited. They, they like this lifestyle because it's, it's presented in that way now, thanks to social media. Some of the good things about social media, mm-hmm. that something that is so out of the box suddenly is, can be portrayed. You know, a, a small glimpse from our lifestyle can be put out there and pique the interest. But back then, there wasn't anything like that. We used to have some blogs, maybe. 
So I wasn't familiar with this at all. I had known one family in my city. I used to live in Pittsburgh. I was working at the time. So I I was, you know, I had my uh, first child. And of course, you know, when you become a parent, your priorities suddenly shift. So I was going through the usual, like the stuff, the figuring out how you want to parent them. And there was one thing that was always concerning to me uh, back then, which was how will I instill my values in my child? Mm. Um, Because I had read a book (laughs) Hold on to your kids. Yeah, um, I love that book. Yes. New um, it's it's mm. such a beautiful book. And I remember when I was reading that book by Dr. Newfeld and Dr. Gabor Mate and reflecting back on my childhood. And I couldn't help but notice that so much of my authentic self was lost mm. in those formative years mm. because I was heavily oriented towards my peers. Yeah. You yeah, know, I um, grew up as a minority, and mm-hmm. um, and I remember like always disliking my true identity and mm-hmm. trying to fit in all the time. You know, mm-hmm. and to a great extent, missing out on the real beauty that was there within my own tradition because I almost mm-hmm. like a rebel. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, now I I don't want to do that and this and and. When life came full circle as an adult, I found so much peace within that tradition, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, so I, I had this thing that I hope that my kids don't have to become this other person. Right. Yeah. In order to find their place in the larger world. Mm. And and almost almost to the point that, you know, you, you're not honoring your, your own self. Yeah. Right? So... Yeah. Because I had that experience. So, of course, I also had other concerns like safety and um, what kind of an environment would it be? I'm an immigrant. So, you know, back like I had my entire schooling, my engineering, everything was done in India. Mm. So when I was living in uh, Pittsburgh, I've been in the States for the last 17, 18 years. So it's not been a long time. So back then, like I'm talking about 10 years ago, I was kind of like, Oh, I wonder how the schools work here. So we were looking at some private schools in Pittsburgh and some public schools. We lived in a good, very good school district. You know, so I was not concerned more as much about the education aspect back then. Mm-hmm. It started with the whole values and who yeah. they become as a person. Yeah. So I think it started at the right place. Yeah. And then when I looked into the education aspect, I kept uh, realizing that this doesn't resonate with me, you know, like small, subtle things here and there. For example, like my husband uh, looked into the school and he said, the school has a very low uh, student to teacher ratio. Mm-hmm. And that's really good for the kids. It was a very right. expensive school in Pittsburgh. Right. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So they want more attention. Yeah. And because I had this book at the back of my mind. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. We want more adults around children. Yes. You know, who are they going to look up to uh, as a role model, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I was reading that book, I remember distinctly that, you know, I I could recall all those kids in my class who were picked on a lot Mm. and how it affected their confidence. Yeah. Uh, Especially one, one specific boy, I still remember him. Like he was always, everybody would joke about him and he would laugh with everyone. It didn't look like he's getting offended, but that was his, that's, (laughs) that's how he was. His coping mechanism. Exactly. It was yeah. his coping and it was also shaping him. Yeah. 
Right. Internalizing it. Yeah. Over yeah. a long period of time, yeah. it shaped him, his personhood. Yeah. yeah. So. Wow. So yeah, it started yeah. with all of this, you know, stuff in the background. And I kind of like, when I finished that book, I was like, uh, it didn't, it doesn't talk about homeschooling at all. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, I was like, hmm, hmm. I, 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 uh, I wonder what this, what it would be like to spend the time with the child. There was one family that was online schooling. And I always looked at them as like, ah, this is, they are depriving their kids right. of the world out there. And you know, like you have this judgment about mm-hmm. homeschooling, right? Mm-hmm. So it did uh, stir something in me to consider this because I had heard about it. I had another friend who had started homeschooling. Her son has had lost motivation. Like he was daydreaming in the class. He wasn't a good fit. And very few teachers would even notice that he's actually a very bright kid. He was mm. kind of like lost in the class. Yeah. You know, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. she did decide to pull him out. And I remember looking up articles for her just to kind of encourage her. Yeah. Like, hey, keep going. This is not so out of the blue. You know, like you can do this. It's kind of acceptable and things like that. But I never considered it for myself. Then uh, we were exploring, we even made uh, made like a cross-country move, uh, looking for good private schools. And we were were still like exploring. So we had this concern like, oh, we want a values-driven school. And I don't know, when when I found some values-driven school, I I felt like they, they were more of like instilling values at the without any science, (laughs) without any good thought given to how are we developing this child? Yeah. Because I I could almost see through the whole curricula-based teaching. I didn't want a modified worldview. Mm -hmm. What I mean, I wanted Mm -hmm. something deeper. Are we focusing on nurturing the child and developing their mind, giving them that acceptance, making them feel invited? I think I was looking for a different educational philosophy, but it's not caught up on the education system yet. Not in the public schools, not in the private schools. I think we are just at the, probably now, I think we are at the beginning phase of it. I think that's a good point. I think educational philosophy, this idea of what is it for? What are we actually trying to develop in kids? I think people have kind of just gone with the flow because it was ready-made. It's in the box. You know, I like how you're saying out of the box, in the box. It's in the box. It's and I and it's understandable because, you know, it's kind of still this experiment in humanity. (laughs) In a way, school actually started as a thing in in the US to contain kids because they didn't know what else to do with them. They were on the street, they were getting in trouble. So, I mean, if you think about it that way, it hasn't been around that long. We're still really in the, the baby phases of it. So we haven't even questioned the philosophy of it. And I think as we are getting more um sophisticated in sharing knowledge as well across cultures, across communities, it's allowing us to get a little more complex in our thinking too, which is then bringing up this idea of 
what are we training them to do? Or what, what is the point of this? You know, it's not just to contain kids. We actually really want them to, I love the word invite. We want to invite them into a world of, of learning and how to discover that. So I love how you bring that up. And I want to hear more of your journey. I'm just going to put a bookmark in how important I think it is to talk about that adult child ratio and the prefrontal cortex. So I'd love, I want to get back to that. And I love Gordon Neufeld. I'm sure people have heard me talk about him before, but the idea of attachment and how incredibly important that is. So those are some topics I want to come back to. The other really important point also I want to just touch on that you said, I remember, I think I don't ever use Twitter, but years ago, I think I attempted it. And I remember my one tagline was because I was really deeply immersed in schools at that time and school counseling and helping with teachers and parents as well. It was one of the greatest gifts you can give to a child is help them tune into their internal guidance. And I think that's something that can be very betrayed in a lot of oh. our social settings. And that's very much what you're touching on. Absolutely. Yeah. That, yeah. that that self, that was the word I was looking for. The self-betrayal yeah. that we do. Yeah. Uh, because we're always trying to fit in. And yeah. we learn this very early on. Yeah. And is there a place like why so much of the social expectation early yeah. on? Don't put them in places where they're going to be excessively judged, categorized and put in a box. Because then, you know, that box isolates you like you mm-hmm. you live in that box and it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes I forgot to mention there was one more thing that had happened which kind of sparked all this kind of reading and reflecting the Virginia Tech shooting had happened right mm-hmm. around the time my son was I think he was one or two like just that age where I was thinking a lot about school yeah and uh, I was reading that book so I remember connecting that so many kids have this self-hate and all these problems with teenagers and and you know it's easy to look at it like teenage rebellion or teenage problems but what we do until they're teens Mm -hmm. is what comes out at that time right that's the time they are we have already put so much of this in their mind that they have they they struggle when they reach that point where they're supposed to become this person who picks from all this adult and, you know, world yeah. experience that we've given them before that. Yeah. And the amount of like, and I, I, I did end up going down the rabbit trail and exploring what happened with those Columbine kids. Yeah. The, the Columbine. Uh, mm-hmm. The earlier, the, like. In, the, yeah. The other shooting. Yeah. The earlier, yeah. Yeah. And by then Sandy Hook had not even happened, but mm-hmm. I remember internalizing this, that I'm convinced that we are not, there's something wrong. <laughs> there's something yeah. systemically wrong. And we are not catching up on all this science that's out there. Yeah. Because people were, people are talking about it. Like there were people talking about it, but it was all like scattered. Yes. Yeah. And, and not looking necessarily, they, I find that in a lot of these very extreme cases of things, because that's usually what comes up in the media. It's not the day-to-day right. stuff, which is actually way more common. But we're not looking at these, you know, I think this is what's something we resonate so deeply on is these long trajectories, these long timelines. Where are the dots connecting? What are these patterns that we're seeing in these people, these kids, these teenagers that are doing these things? There are patterns, but we don't really talk about that very much Yeah, because there's no simple solution to it. It's systemic.
So, you know, it's like I'm, I was looking at it from all these different angles, like from the values uh, aspect, from this aspect. And then I hit another issue. Mm-hmm. And this is what actually changed me as a person. So mm. okay, I did end up convincing my family that I want to try homeschooling. And, you know, my husband was kind of like, um, he was mostly like, uh, let me be the devil's advocate. <laughs> kind yeah. of like, yeah. you know, always coming from this. And I didn't need a devil's advocate at that time. <laughs> but, you know, so we would often have this <laughs> very <Debate>. interesting <laughs> conversations back and forth. You know, imagine we are immigrants. We come from a country where competition is everything and mm. got to survive and you got to go through the uh, grind and we're both kind of like high achievers like you know what like uh, the problem with high achievers in such a system is that they become the proponents of that system mm. right because they, they succeeded <laughs> in a sense it worked for us right right we know how it works good point like so yeah. i have family of like everybody's thinking i'm crazy to do this First and foremost, uh-huh, like extended uh-huh. family, like think of everyone around the periphery. And uh, I'm like, no, I got to try this. And my son, in a year of homeschooling, develops a stutter. Oh. <laughs> so imagine what it did to me. Wow. Like I was on this very difficult spot. Yeah. Like, what are you doing with your kid? Yeah. <laughs> like you did this. Yeah. Almost, right. Like homeschooling equals, especially you did this kind of a thing. And it was such a humbling and yeah. difficult, but I, I am grateful to God that he put me in that situation because yeah. I would not have noticed the, the beauty mm. of the natural process. Mm, wow. If that didn't happen, because uh, what it did is like, first of all, I started reading about it, like what causes it? Okay, there are no causes. Like nobody says that this causes this, yeah. right? Right. That's like, oh, it's yeah. a developmental thing, yeah. right? Uh, some kids grow out of it. Some kids don't, you know. So I'm like, this child was talking fine. And what happened here? Yeah. Right? So first and foremost, you know, I had that intrigue. The other thing was like, what can we do to help him? Mm. So we went for one therapy session and uh, she was like, uh, you know, rephrase, rephrase and yeah. slow down the pace of your life, you know. Mm-hmm. And she did a session and I was observing her and um, I was like, OK, I can do this. And we didn't continue therapy because it wasn't that serious. And I was just trying to follow that protocol. But what I ended up doing after that is I slowed down the pace of my life. So I removed mm-hmm. the ice skating lessons. I removed curricular like very regimented stuff that was given to me as preschool curriculum mm-hmm. and I invested in play wow my god my heart is just so heavy hearing this story <laughs> so, hmm. I just showed up at the children's museum twice a week playground every day hours of just him talking and me being present and just rephrasing you know what does that tell a child yes yes Absolutely. Looking back, yeah. As an adult, like um, as an adult, because I really grew up after that. You know, like after all this, now, now myself, you know, training in the child psychology and all of this, that made him feel seen. Yes. You know that rephrasing. Oh, amazing. I can't. Yeah. Let's let's because this is how I wanted this conversation to go. I just want to hear these stories, and then we'll keep injecting 
because there's these incredible lessons that just keep emerging as you speak. One of them is just as you, you're, you're saying that you're present, you're rephrasing. So I, I worked at the, the New York University Institute for Prevention Science. Just the title alone of that institute was a huge paradigm shift for me because it had followed a class I had taken on what's called intervention and prevention. Intervention is things have already gone wrong. So you have to figure out how to intervene. And prevention is this idea of like, how do we build kids up as best as possible, as early as possible? So we don't need all these interventions. So anyway, so I, I ran the toddler program. So we would implement research and we would play it out. So I was with all the toddlers and the parents and doing teacher, you know, parent education. One of the biggest skills, I'm not going to remember all of the acronym, but it was PRIDE. And I know that one of them was, so there was PLAY, R for repeating what they're saying, I for imitating, (laughs) D for describing simply objectively. No, no labels yet. You don't say, oh, that's a good drawing. You just say, oh, that's a straight line. That's Mm -hmm. red. That's large, that's deep, that's shallow, and E, echoing. So almost saying stuff back, but kind of like what you're saying with the rephrasing. It was something I did intuitively with kids. And then as I saw this happening explicitly, their attention span just skyrockets when you are that present. And the way they are, you can just almost see their minds open up to the world because just like what you're saying, first of all, they notice someone is noticing them. And we are, our brains are feedback systems. That's what it is. It's algorithm. I mean, obviously it's more beautiful than that, but I think all of this stuff is beautiful. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's built off of feedback. It's built built off serve and return. That is yeah, what, sort of under, yeah. exactly the brain body system. That's what it is. So if you can think of like how much of the serve and return is happening, if they are just playing, like they're just allowed to play, they're doing what what their heart calls them to do, that internal guidance. Try a little bit of this. You try a little bit of that, but you have this presence, this regulated adult presence who is kind of shining those beams of attention and that beautiful live moment by moment feedback. That's the key because that's often what is missed. And we don't have to have this our entire lives. We need doses of it though. We need that really right. special present moment attention. But especially as brains are building, it's that live feedback data that's so critical to building their brain. So he's drawing a line. He sees some someone notes that he's drawing a line. That now builds the verbal aspect of it. The regulated, verbal, more complex kind of way to describe the world and interact, like they're building that together with with that caregiver. So I just love that you're saying that. It just, it completely goes with all the research that we know that presence matters. Play and presence matters. Beautiful. And this is so, this is why I love what you do. Cause it's back then that's, that's another thing. Nobody told me 
this is why you do it. You know, like if you yeah, are informed, right. you would be energized to do more and more of this. Yes. It, was, it was like you said, it was an intuitive action. I just observed the therapist and I, I, I actually remember writing an email to the, the head of the Stuttering Association of Western Pennsylvania. Like I'm, I'm a geek. <laughs> <laughs> So I just went about this, read a lot about it. I emailed him and I asked him, like, I'm curious what causes this, you know, what is the, what can I do different? And he actually encouraged me. I told him what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm doing. This is where I think is what, this is helping him. He seems calmer. He seems more settled. I'm doing these long bedtime routines with him where I'm reading aloud to him. Again, the uh-huh. servant is not bedtime. Yeah. Actually, that's something that I still do to this yeah. day. We do not skip our long bedtime because I've noticed that there's something. There's, I mean, magic in it, Mag- magic science in it. Yeah, you know? magical science. Attachment. Yeah. Yes. That's the way I give them something, something they need so innately. Yes. And moving them developmentally. Yes. And I'm going to, I'm going to just keep highlighting the silent science every time you bring up these points. So keep, keep the bookmark of your story because um, I just think the audience would really appreciate to understand this exactly like what you're saying on this more explicit level. A lot of times we're doing these things. We rock, we sing lullabies. We speak in a very specific voice to different age groups. Like I don't speak the same way to teenagers as I do to toddlers. All these beautiful things, these nighttime routines, the bedtime stories, the the rituals. Some of us do that very innately or intuitively. But first of all, I don't think some people don't because they maybe were not modeled it. Some people are so stressed and busy that they don't realize the importance of it. So when we highlight some of the science that sometimes that makes something click for somebody. Oh, yes. Just with the the attachment principles and this co-regulate to me, it's this co-regulating principle of nighttime and the sleep, which it's for all of the day, but a lot of the days for exploring sleep is for you're lowering your, your nervous system. You want it to go into a lower gear. You want it to go into parasympathetic. You want some breaks on the heart. You want blood to go to the internal organs and away from those muscles. And one of the ways that mammals specifically, and we are mammals, we do this is in a co-regulating system. We have mechanisms for our own way to do that on our own that we build over time. But even younger adults, you know, the emerging, we still need grownups in a a sense to co-regulate with, especially living in the same home. It's like a nest. So your system helps them go into that mode. It can actually reflect into different kinds of brain waves. And that all is so helpful for their sleep. And sleep is magical. Sleep is absolutely magically scientific <laughs> for the brain and what it does. It flushes stuff out, it, it shrinks, and then it expands again. It consolidates everything. So I love that you put an importance on sleep and the rituals behind sleep too. I think that's also really important. I think that's something that, because I've done a lot of work with families for decades now, I see that missing in a lot of family systems. They don't pay enough attention to how their kids fall asleep, the ceremony, like kind of the ritual, the whatever happens before sleep, and especially in the teenage years. And I think that's where a lot of kids are getting very robbed of sleep. So I love that you highlight that.
this is actually a great a way to kind of like add the science back you know one of the things that i feel bad about is that moms like me people who sometimes have these intuitions but then they are not honored by yeah. the you know like i remember even like early visits to the pediatrician and asking him things like this i remember my son was doing the pretend play and he put all the all the little dolls and the dog and everybody in one room and he looked at <laughs> me like you you're co-sleeping right at that time i was like you know like i was still kind of new here right like i'm like yeah, yeah i was almost embarrassed by that <laughs> but today i would say that with pride that yeah we co-sleep yeah. i remember asking about like breastfeeding like is it like the answers were sometimes you know like what works for you you know that was the answer and i'm like i want to know what does the science say or mm-hmm. what does your expertise say mm-hmm. i don't want you to tiptoe around my feelings right now mm-hmm. but sometimes you know when you make a good choice they would affirm that like oh you're breastfeeding lucky guy it's good for them mm-hmm. but when you ask a, a blank question it's usually like tiptoeing around what you want to hear i, I can see why that is yeah. important you know right And and the thing is is that I think as much as we want to turn to experts to guidance the truth is we do we do want to also have that inner guidance and so to me what what a scientist mindset is which I for me is what I love for human beings in general is this idea that you can take what research says and then you try it out and if it doesn't align then you experiment with something else so it's still helpful to hear what what it says and then seeing how how it plays out in your own life we don't have to accept it as the truth all the time but that's exactly, exactly what science is is you don't exactly. accept things like that you right. always expand and explore exactly i'm like yeah. i'll do the filtering myself right you know, exactly i'll check where yeah. it fits or doesn't yeah. work or whatever but that's my problem you know like yeah. you give me from your knowledge give it to me don't deprive me of what you know right, right. yeah like i i i feel like this is this is something that consistently happens either the experts do it because they are in alignment with the system you know whether the medical system or the education like this is how things are supposed to be and the more you read the more you know that no science is evolving i feel like it's almost like disrespecting the lay people their intelligence we don't yeah. have to deprive them of that information yeah absolutely i'd love to hear the the story about the stuttering Sorry. was there anything else you wanted to finish about that oh yes so that was a big moment that was a big eye opener the whole journey oh, of that was it was cuz i remember sitting at the children's museum just watching my son and reading books slowing down as much mm-hmm. as we don't like to do or naturally do because of our own upbringing but when you actually go uh, and operate in that mode things yeah. start happening yeah very easily and everything becomes enjoyable like i started to enjoy homeschooling i started mm. to enjoy motherhood to the point that i wanted to tell everybody why is it so difficult for us to slow down yeah i think it's an important point because we are adding too many things to our attention to our attentional resources and i think this idea of slowing down you know you could use the word mindful as well in there and when we say slow it doesn't always mean physically that you know you're do- yeah. you might still do that thing fast right <laughs> but you're only you're only focused on that one thing and when we right. add too many things i think that it does deplete i mean i think it really does deplete like the the brain resources because they have to go at pretty fast paces to do all this kind of switching constantly So you're allowing it to be again that 
that very present moment feedback for for one thing in particular. It makes me think of, um, so I I spent time in monasteries um, with Buddhist monks. I I don't know if you know that, but got a lot of training on meditation and mindfulness. And a very big part of the practice there was one thing at a time. So if you are walking, just walk and just mm-hmm. notice. And then if you want to talk, stop and just talk, which I think that, I mean, I think there's benefits to walking and talking, but it was just this idea of a shift, yeah. right? Yeah. And we would do tasks like filling up um, containers with beans and things like that. And we would notice as well because the the sisters and brothers would come along sometimes and, you know, just remind us gently of, of their, of their practice. They never enforced anything, but the accuracy and efficiency of our tasks was so enhanced by just being there with it and not jumping to the next thing. Cause some people would want to do this and this and what you call multitasking, which doesn't really exist. It's a switch. So I love that one thing that came up for you in those early phases was Mm -hmm. seeing that simplifying, subtracting Mm -hmm. stuff actually helped regulate his nervous system and helped with the learning process instead of adding more and more and more things. And I started to notice my child for the person he was. Mm, yeah. The, 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 the main problem with the education system out of the many problems is the standardization. Yes. Like there is just no space for yeah. appreciating a unique person, their unique timeline, their own readiness, their own interests, their personhood. Like that to me is the most problematic thing because the intent is good. There are some incredible people and I still have like fond memories of some of those teachers who I really connected with. So the system has a problem, but it has a lot of good people and has good intentions. But I think what we don't understand with the way we are going, where we are looking at fixed outcomes, fixed timelines, and on the other end is a human being, you know, like, yeah. Anything in nature doesn't work like that. Like it's almost like like a factory. It's inspired by the factory model, right? Yeah. Uh, The modern day schooling. It doesn't work well with a human mind, a human being who has a context. Yeah. There's no space for that context. You drop your context and you enter first, first problem. Yeah. The second thing is that, you know, your timeline or where you are. And then the judgment. There is judgment in that system. Yeah. And that judgment kind of holds you hostage. There's no space for emotions, like the messiness that comes with emotions. Emotions, especially those vulnerable emotions, the tender feelings, like you almost have to hide those. uh, You get picked on like if you have that, but that's, that's what makes us human. Yeah. It's so many hours a day inside uh, a system that lacks the component of systems thinking which is how many different aspects of a human are needed for us to really tap into how incredibly intelligent and powerful we are in very, very unique ways. 
So even what you're saying there too, like these vulnerable emotions, for example, that's hard because the adult child ratio as well is so not aligned with how humans really do this with our nervous systems that it kind of has to go mass controlled, <laughs> you know, and it, and we're talking about masses. And so, of course, standardization comes in when you're thinking about it in this industrial factory way. But exactly what you're saying, like, there is such a uniqueness to each human that for some, I really love your the, the point you made early in the beginning. A lot of us were fine. You know, we're all fine. We turned out, you know, because yeah, we figured yeah. out how to read and write and we sat in the chair and we, but I think that, I do think that rebellion is important too. Rebellious kind of minds are really important for society. A lot of society does not want that, does not like it. It makes it very uncomfortable because we don't know how to deal with that. And so that rebellious, defiant questioning of authority, like, why are we learning this? Where did you get that? All of that, I think, gets suppressed. And I think that is also unfortunate because it, I do think we need to question authority, not to the point of, you know, like in family systems, there's a point to hierarchy. We need to yeah. also honor the wisdom of our elders and past generations. We need all of that, but we also need to be able to question information and what we're being given. And I right. think that also is leads to some of this, to me, there's a very emotional aspect to that that comes out and like an informational aspect of when we keep getting taught, and I think a lot of this is in the school systems, but it can also be in very suppressive authoritarian kind of family systems as well. Oh, yes. Right. Of don't question. Yep. One thing that's really important, and you brought this up in the very beginning, is when we're forming our identity, we need to be able to question the opinion of other people and like the the opinion they have of us and their reactions. We need to be able to have that internal thing that says, no, maybe they're not right saying I'm pathetic. Maybe it is okay that I'm sensitive or maybe it's okay that I love this thing so much and I don't really like what they do. A little bit of that doubt, like I'm going to doubt you a little bit. That gets suppressed in these kinds of systems. And I think that that's very dangerous to us. And I think that's where a lot of those, those mental health, you know, because then we may actually take in that really crappy opinion somebody has of us <laughs> that is based on their own stuff, but exactly. we've take, taken it in. We haven't questioned it. And then on that information level, as, as we are in society now too, we, we keep just taking in the system as though it's good for us all the time. All of these yeah. things are just, they're fine. Let's just yeah. keep, let's keep doing it that way. We're not questioning that. It's very interesting how you put this because this is another thing, you know, I have this thing that are we keeping like in the homeschool, within the homeschool world? Now, there are different kinds of homeschoolers. Some people really think that we're keeping the kids home because there's bad stuff happening out mm. there. I don't agree with that mindset. 
So there, there are different schools of thought. You know, within the homeschool world, there's a lot going on. Homeschools are unique. They're like private schools. Like yeah. every homeschool is different. It's just as good or as bad as the parent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where the the inner work comes in. And that's yeah. what I passionately do because yeah. don't mm. do it from this place where you're just constantly criticizing everything. You're, you're just not turning yeah. the camera around and looking inside. Even that judgment, when that comes in, it often comes from a place where like, oh, you got to question yourself now because you know, you are the role model here. Yeah. Am I someone who's like anti this, anti that, anti this and always criticizing everything. And now that's what I'm modeling to my child. Or are we doing like keeping them close so that, you know, you're just only giving them this very specific kind of a cultural experience because, you know, they need to be, they need to have a broader idea about the world Mm -hmm. and not a skewed idea where we are always right. Okay. The identity formation is good and that stuff is important, but it's not to the exclusion of everything that's out there. Mm -hmm. We want, even if we want them to choose our values as they grow up, you can't just give them only (laughs) our values and then say, you know, because we've not broadened their world. Yeah. So important. I love that. Let's, let's hang out there just for a second. When we try to narrow another person's world or our own world into this little, little bubble. Yeah, we may have these heartfelt values that feel important and have worked for us. But when we deprive someone else of exploring like the vast possibilities and perspectives of the world, we think that we're helping them have those values stronger, more strongly. But actually, what I think makes it stronger is if you are living so aligned with your own what feels, what matters to you and you follow through with it and you have so much integrity and so much of your own inner peace and your ability to take charge of your own mind, take charge, you know, use your emotions in really powerful ways that you want. Right. When all of that's so intentional about who you are, that will shine through. Exactly. And, you know, and then if you, and if it's so strong within you, you can surrender and allow other people to just play with all of those perspectives and you will see for yourself which ones what what do I embody that actually does seem to align really well with how you want to live your life and you feel you know and you'll discard the rest and to me that actually will make those values if you are truly embodying them yourself as a caregiver as a teacher as a role model if they're so deep within you, they're embodied in every little micro movement. And I, you know, my book's going to be all about the signals, but like every frequency you admit is this embodiment of how deeply internalized it is for you and how certain and comfortable and confident you are in that, that, that is getting transmitted out at every moment. You don't have to force someone explain it to them it's it's shining from you. And I think that to me is the most powerful way for values to extend and resonate to other people is they see like, you know, they, they feel it. It's an embodiment.
something that is important that you uh, bring up in a lot of your teachings, because you are a leader, is that idea of how important it is for the leaders, the role models, the caregivers, the teachers, the parents to go within themselves. Yes. Like that's a really big part of what you teach. Even if you learn and you know that this works and this is important for the children, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't see my child. Mm-hmm. I had barriers. Right. I had expectations. I had pressures. My own childhood experience, like what works, what doesn't work. We are always, as human beings, we're always judging, yeah. right? Like, yeah. oh, this works, this doesn't work. I'm sure there's brain science to this. It almost becomes like a barrier for us to appreciate and see who we are serving. Like if I'm mm. serving my child, uh, if this is an act of service for me, yeah, um, right. I cannot not see who I am serving. Because yeah. the, the criticism, we can have all the criticism for the systemic stuff. What the system is essentially failing to do is looking at the individual, meeting mm. them right where they are yeah. at. Yeah. Right. That's right. This responsive person. Yeah. Right. But there are barriers. And I had those barriers. Like I would often sit down with myself and like, what happened to the instilling of love of learning? Mm -hmm. Like I would just ask myself, like, Mm -hmm. what happened with that goal that you had? What are we doing right now? Especially when you're all by yourself and you're doing this and your child is interested in something and you know something needs to get done because grade levels or there are right. things that you know oh, yeah. are we learning to read oh he, he cannot write yet he cannot right. read yet. how is how is the spelling you have all these things running at the back of your mind mm-hmm. and I'm sure teachers wrestle with this as well you know there's a reason mm-hmm. why has good schools because yep. they they have not made it regimented as a system they give teachers a lot of freedom so yep. that they can respond and that's why those yeah. kids flourish you know yeah so Meeting the people where they are, that takes a lot from us and a lot of inner work. Yeah. Really questioning yourself. Why are we doing this? Yeah. Am I really present? Am I really responding to this child? Or is it like, am I just, we have these obsessions, we have these compulsions that we cannot let them transgress. This is the hour we do this. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it can be about the the timetable. Sometimes it can be about curricula. Sometimes it could be about family values. Because it's this society is built on judgment. So you have to liberate yourself from a lot of this to do this right. And that takes a a lot of courage, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of inner strength. And that's why I lean into my faith with my work. I Mm -hmm. I had to make that choice at one Mm -hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Am I going to bring that in the context? But like you said somewhere, I think I heard you speak somewhere that sometimes to make big changes, you it has to transcend. Yeah. It has to be something yeah. higher. Yeah. Absolutely. It has to be a higher calling. Yeah. So I don't yeah. remove that. Although what I'm saying is relevant to all people, but then I bring in those values because when I'm working with another woman who can identify with me, I know by bringing in that context, I can powerfully make mm-hmm. those within mm-hmm. her because that's what's going to serve her, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she can see this beyond her yeah. every day. You know, there's a yeah. higher reason to do this. Yes, absolutely. I love that. That touches, yeah, the, the wording I use is self-transcendent purpose. So it transcends ourself. 
What's so powerful about that is what you were talking about before too, like these barriers that we have sometimes to seeing somebody. Oh, there's so much I want to say. There's so much depth (laughs) into this. So I want to try and get all of it. So to really see somebody, we need to be, it's that live moment, micro moment by micro moment feedback, right? So that that's that's where we want to get to. But when we have these barriers, that kind of the scales that come in front of our eyes, what's happening, I think, is a lot of our past experiences, all of that, the judgment, the thinking about what other people are going to think, all of that kind of stuff. And there's actual very specific systems of the brain that are involved in that. Right. What that is, is there's like, instead of the, that people aren't, can't see my hands right now, but you know, instead of shining that light, that spotlight of awareness onto this being in front of you, and you shine back and forth with each other, with all of this data that's getting transmitted in these frequencies and waves, when you block that by going back into your own self-consciousness, your mind, your wounds, your, you know, your self-esteem, what other people are going to think about you, you actually are blocking off that live stream that's happening between you and that person. And so it's that self-consciousness that's kind of happening. Self-conscious, but other, you know, like thinking about what other people think and, or it's, it's not even that conscious though. It's sometimes it's just this feeling of whatever it is, you're bothered. And as soon as we engage in this transcendent, this self-transcendent idea how am I being of service? How am I serving this person? And how am I serving potentially a wider, bigger idea than this? How How is this, what I am doing with them, how is that going to blossom into something incredible for this world? How is this going to transcend into my child and how they are going to treat others? And how yeah. beautiful of a thing that will, you know, grow into. So that's self-transcendent. It's like serving a, a wider, a bigger system, I like to call it. You know, if, if people don't like the, the the soft, mushy words, then, you know, for <laughs> me, I just go into systems again. What's the widest, most infinite system you can think of? Because that's the universe. So it's just infinite. It's eternal. Yeah. It's like, we don't even have to go that big, but what are these bigger systems that we are all a part of that we benefit from all the energy we put out? We also benefit from maybe not directly that person, but from the system. So as we transcend ourselves and really think of how do we serve this per- this being, this incredible complex being in front of me right now, it takes us out of ourselves, that self-conscious wounded part of us. And that is, has been a very big part of my work that I've talked about many times, like even with the emerging adults that I've worked with, as soon as they get in touch with this idea of they have a bigger purpose, they have something to serve, they have something to contribute. It takes them out of that very wounded, immature part of them. Yeah. All of a yeah. sudden they, it's like, they just come, come up and they realize I have something to give. I have something to offer. How do I enhance that now? And that to me can spark a lot of learning is this idea of purpose. Like there's this really beautiful example from a school a long time. They did studies a while ago and they, they were having a lot of issues with like discipline and grades and all this. So they blew that out of the water and they decided to start these ideas of the self-transcendent purpose. And so what they, and they let the kids explore, they gave them ideas of what it means And the kids came up with, this is so adorable and beautiful. There was a duck that had a wounded leg. And so they decided they wanted to figure out how could they make a prosthetic 
aid for this duck. And so now you've got engineer, they had 3D printer, like all of a sudden they wanted 3D printers, they wanted engineering, they they studied biomechanics, the amount of learning that happened, and they came together as a team, you know, and they created something for for this duck. To me, that's that idea of it's you're transcending out of the four walls of the classroom. You're looking at how all these living systems are interconnected. You're looking at how human intelligence can come together in these beautiful ways to make life better for ourselves and others. And that's a lot of that transcendence piece. That is the essence of education, right? Beyond grades, beyond all these things, there is a purpose, right? Yeah. Like I think we deprive the kids of that purpose and we give them this fake purpose that you need to get this kind of grade. And it's it's almost like yeah. I said, you know, like sometimes we insult the human intelligence, even in children, they yeah. are incredibly intelligent. Yes. And they are so capable of doing things. If you just let things be like keep it real they want to move in that direction where they yeah. make a difference they, yeah. they are resourceful yeah. they are you know creative yeah I think the the judgment if we can remove that and even from the homes there are people who homeschool but then their homes don't look any different from a school I have been in and out of phases where I have to reprimand myself it's a constant battle against myself that I have the parent-teacher meetings. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. hey, why, why did you decide to do it again? Because it's so easy to produce results, unquote, with right. the curricula. Like, oh, we finished these two pages or we're getting somewhere, right? Yeah. Everybody wants to get somewhere. And this other stuff seems, you know, up in the air. I don't know where you're going with this. And, you know, this is a broken project or we failed again. If you look at it from that judgment-filled place, it looks like, you know, random, right. but actually we're building up to something. Mm, so. The long game as well. You're thinking of the long game. Uh, I know the other thing that you you bring a lot of outdoors stuff into it. I think that is key as well. Like learning from natural systems where that intelligence oh, yeah. is just there. And yeah. then I've even seen, like, I think you had some lessons where you were baking or cooking things with them and then they're bringing in ratios and and all that. And so the result is something uh, nutritious and something you eat, or it can be a result can also be like a garden that you create together and you watch it. And there's no result of that necessarily because maybe it fails. Maybe you don't, it doesn't grow. That's fantastic. Now you get to explore why you get to go into these bigger systems thinking. The failures are so beautiful as well and all that. And that's, to me, a very big part of what school doesn't honor. You know, those micro failures that are not not honored as part of the process. Yeah. If we can do this home education from this place where you see it as an adventure, and if you can rid yourself of all these, you know, baggages that we that we all carry, honestly, it's it's going to be work, but it's such a worthwhile, enjoyable, simple process, mm, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's what I want to share, you know, like that's what yeah. I want. Because I have had those moments where I experienced it, like I was up here and then there are dips, you know, 
Yeah. Like, cause I am product of a system too. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm still that, that thing is always hanging and, you know, I'm dragging that thing and I'm trying to cut loose. Mm-hmm. And there are moments where when you experience it, I just want to go on the rooftops and tell everybody, mm-hmm. hey guys, you know, <laughs> this is doable. Like, and I didn't even get into the fact that your children will learn. You'll be amazed at what they are capable of doing. He did overcome the stutter. He outgrew that. I didn't have to go for excessive therapy sessions or anything. And looking back, I feel that what he needed was, you know, the developmental conditions. Love that. Yes. Yeah. Like his needs needed to be fulfilled. He needed to be seen. He needed to have that pace. Me responding to him based on where he was. Yeah. When I started homeschooling, even before homeschooling for that matter, you know, I, I had put him in a Montessori and he was just, they were calling him disruptive and, you know, things like that. Like he's not doing this. And, you know, as a young parent, like it's so easy to think that something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with your kid. Yeah. So it just, it doesn't leave you. Uh, and if you can just take yourself out of that, yeah. just go out in nature, just yeah. play, just Go to a place which where there's freedom of movement, you know, like yeah. children's museum where there's a lot of hands-on stuff going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, sensory and motor. Yeah. Yeah. You will be amazed at you develop respect for nature's plan. Mm. You know. Beautiful. Uh, I call it Allah's plan, God's plan. Yeah. But you know, whatever we call it, nature's plan. There is yeah. wisdom in nature. There's yes. wisdom in the natural order. Yes. You know, like. Absolutely. Unfolds. That's right. It unfolds. It's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And that story ended well. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm glad we came back to that, yeah. coming back full circle and coming back to our initial point about talking about the philosophy and a sense of education, what it's for. There's this guy from that show Shark Tank, and I can't remember his name, but he he's the guy with, with no hair on his head. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> he was saying that the number one, he said, okay, I'm going to give you the top five careers kids should be encouraged to pursue, you know, to really thrive in the world. He goes, engineer, 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 engineer. And what he meant by that, and the thing that I I think is interesting about that philosophy is when we think of engineer, we're thinking in a very limited way. Uh, Yeah. We're talking about this idea of people that understand how do things work together? What are the bigger systems that all interplay? So I come at, I would kind of replace that word with more of a like a, a systems thinker. And that can even take the, take the form of something more abstract, you know, that that we enjoy and there's passion and art and all of that stuff into it. But it has a flavor of it's kind of thinking about how do we respond to life in very flexible ways. So I don't, I actually don't know if that's even the right parallel that he made. No, actually, you're right. I, yeah. I do think like this. And I know that my program is an extension of how I think, which is like a problem solver. Yeah, you're an engineer. So I noticed a problem. I started doing these support meetings and, you know, I yeah. started talking to moms. I'm like, what is the barrier? What, what's stopping us? Yeah, okay, yeah. Address this. And then, okay, what is the other barrier? Like, let's address that. And then putting it in this big picture. So, you yeah. know, yeah. I start with these big diagrams because I'm, I'm trying to solve the problem because that's yes. what I'm 
That's how yes. my mind works. Yes. And see, okay, thanks for validating that because <laughs> I was like, I don't know that. But, and, and that's what I think for coming back to our, our point of, you know, philosophy, education, what it's for. We, we want to make life, we want to feel good inside. <laughs> yeah. We want to be regulated beings. Right. Uh, we want to know how to solve our own problems and do that in a very empowered way where we don't have to wait for somebody else to solve it for it. Like that's who we are as complex adaptive. We're complex adaptive, adaptive systems and adaptive means we are feedback responsive, which means right. that something can emerge and we can flexibly navigate that situation taking ongoing data and, you know, using our incredibly complex minds, our intelligence to constantly emerge with different situations. So that, that flexibility, that responsiveness, that is in a sense what I feel like education is for. And we can look at it in a very heartfelt way. Sometimes that sounds very cold, like engineer, right? What's the problem? How do, you know, what's, what's the yeah. obstacle? How do we, but we can look at it from a very soft place too, in terms of family systems engineering, right? Like yeah. what are the hindrances to this? What's yes. happening here? Why is there dysregulation? How do we, you know, so it's problem solvers, it's science, scientist mindset, problem solvers. And really expanding our mind to seeing all the different threads that can feed into a, a, a challenge that we have. To me, that when we're thinking about education, it doesn't have to be homeschooling. It doesn't have yeah. to be yeah. any of this, but just for right. us to be reflecting on why are, why are we doing this? Like, why is it, what is the end goal? And I do think this idea of becoming kind of a problem solver is a real, like a flexible adapter to life. Yep. Is, yeah. is a, a really big part of, of this whole process. So, yeah, this yeah. is the funny thing. Like, uh, there are people in my program who are not homeschooling, but they are people who have benefited from viewing themselves and their yeah. families differently. I so, love that. So, it's not right. about a box. You know, we're not yeah. trying to get inside yeah. another box. Right, exactly. What I'm saying is, view yourself as this leader, like yeah. you're leading your children. Yeah. No, and also as a woman, sometimes, you know, it's our instincts. There is, there is something inside of us, which is very nurturing. Like we want to be, you know, hold our kids close. Yeah, like yeah. we want to help them grow up and stuff like that. Some of these things in the societal terms are not seen as something important or, you know, it's almost seen as like, oh, you do that by default. Anyways. Right, right. Not celebrate. Like, yes. you know, our other careers. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that it was hard for me to turn my back on my career and say, I'm not going to go back to work. You know, mm -hmm. I was doing really well as an IT yeah. consultant and it was hard for me. Like, oh, I won't be, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a stay at home mom, you know. Yeah. But again, going back to this idea that let's erase these boxes and these labels and ideas. Like, let's look at life yeah. flexibly and, and approach yeah. this as a problem solver. See what yeah. we can do. Like, yeah, you can use schools. Yeah, you can use this. But if it's not working, have the courage to say, oh, I'm not subscribing to this. I can yeah. figure something out by myself. Yeah. Love that. Uh, go for a school, like go yeah. travel with your family. Like do yeah. what you want to do, what you're yeah. calling. Respond to that. I love that. That beautiful, flexible opportunity for it. And it can change as you go too.
just two final points that to touch on that we were talking about before is we're mammals too. And so attachment matters, nurturing and love and affection and that vulnerability and that presence and that all of that is so important for our nervous systems and regulated nervous systems allow for the blood flow, the brain activity to happen that actually makes people into really good learners. So attachment matters and that whole child perspective matters. And then one other tiny piece, and this is just tying into what you're just saying here, which is it doesn't matter what format this takes. It's these principles that we're trying to share about learning about humans. So you know, the attachment aspect, the problem solving, the complex adaptive, the adaptiveness. And then finally, the ratio of, you know, I like to call them prefrontal cortex models to the ones that don't have all access to that yet. I do think that that is a big problem in society is there's too many young people not having the presence of not just adults, because not all adults have it all figured out, but (laughs) regulated um, self-regulated, self-leadership modeling adults. And we need bigger numbers of that in the presence of these developing brains. So that's the other aspect that I think is important for people to think about when they're talking about education and learning. So, that's so true. That's yeah. So, true. That's... so strong learning communities can, yes. can really help with that. Such a beautiful conversation. There's so much more. I have all these notes, but we're going <laughs> to, maybe we'll do a part two uh, later. And yeah. I know we're, we're going to do a little bit of our own work together with, with your community. Yes. So yes. I'm very excited so about that. It. I, I think I mentioned to you, I came across your profile when um, I was looking into, I think, journaling. Yeah. And uh, that's how I came across your profile and uh, your your work. And I have been like, this is so incredible. Like I, I kind of stuck with you, but I didn't like that resource. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I don't like these reductionist gimmicky resources. Yeah. I, I think there's so much richness to the human yeah. experience. And then we reduce it to such things. I don't know. Maybe it works in a setting where you, right. you want to hand off something to the kids. Yeah. But rich, meaningful conversation does far more than. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so Um, much for your work. Oh, you're welcome. That you shared it uh, because I benefit. I always checking what you're doing. Thank uh, you. Oh, that's so lovely. And just finally, where can people find you? So I have a website called Mm leadersamongstmothers.com. And I have an Instagram account uh, and a Facebook um, by the same name. I'll put Um, the links on on my website. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. It's just. uh, I think that there's there's a lot of space for us to work on ourselves and that by default affects our kids. Like, cause yeah. we become this person who's worth emulating and exactly. learning from and talking to. And yeah. so yeah. everything becomes learning, you know, like this, yeah. I believe in this integrated way of experiencing life yeah. where you don't separate learning into a separate box. I love that. That's a great note to end on. We don't separate. It's just, that's what life is. Yeah, it is learning. That's what humans are. We are learners. That's our superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much, Noor. And stay on the line. We'll keep chatting just for a little bit. I'm going to. Yeah. Thank you so much.
as always, thank you for joining me. If you made it this far <laughs> into the episode, uh, that means you have a pretty long attention span. Um, I'm a very big fan of long-form content, which is where we take our time and we attempt to go deeper into different topics and connections and create more depth and dimension to the context in which we live and the context of different things that we talk about. I think that is really being abandoned today when you look at how our attention is being manipulated and how we are allowing it also to be manipulated into being drawn by very short snippets and images and words that are designed to trigger networks and brain features and neurochemicals that give us hits of what can feel enticing and can even make us feel quite alive because when we are angry or aroused, those are states that change us internally. And when you have millions upon millions upon millions of dollars going into educating the engineers behind so much of what goes on online in terms of making money from our attention. We have to take some time to figure out how do we get more of that control back within ourselves and get that control in order to be able to master our own ways of getting neurochemical states that we enjoy by engaging fully in real life where we're at and allowing ourselves to reflect also on what happens when we do get dysregulated within our relationships and families and communities and when we're on our own, when we're by ourselves. What happens in those moments when we feel we don't like our state, what's happening inside of us, a lot of reflection and as much education as we can get, which is the point of my podcast, to figure out how do we get more control over that? How do we become self-governing over that internal state? I think is a really important topic. It aligns with maturity and it aligns with how we might have some immunity over all of these other influences that are around us all the time. And it's not just social media because there are many generations who experienced absolutely dysfunctional, abusive, post-traumatic, unhealed wounds for millennia now. So, so none of that is a new thing. Our journey is always to figure out how to gain that sense of maturity where we take ownership over our own being as an independent entity that's capable of having that sense of regulation and authority over our own mind, our own internal state. How do we flex and evolve with things that don't seem to be ideal, that don't necessarily meet the conditions we set out? And how do we become that integrative, integrative being who holds more than one perspective? 
and potentially holds a greater system in place in mind as we, as we function, as we figure out our role in the world. So I bring that up because I think that we need as much education as we can on that sense of self-leadership and accountability for our internal states. The road to maturity is part of that. And I'm definitely going to be putting up some more content for that. I am also considering doing an online master series, um, potentially a two or three part series. So I'm going to be sending that information out to my subscribers soon. And I encourage you to do whatever you can to go a little bit deeper into why humans behave the way they do, why you feel the way you do in certain interactions and experiences. Because the more we understand this, the more we may be able to have some power against the really powerful forces that are at play right now, particularly when it comes to social media. So we've always had some level of dysregulation and dysfunction in our social systems. But what's happening now is with artificial intelligence, there, there is a level of brain hacking, if you will, of an intelligence that is capable of influencing our behavior in many, many ways. Just wanted to get on a little bit of that, even though it's not even part of the topic of this episode and it's a very long one. Uh, but returning back to thanking you for listening all the way through uh, to now, because I think we need as many of us that can hold our attention that long and uh, are turning to sources that are talking about how do we do better? How do we become better humans? How do we adapt? How do we regulate ourselves? So I really, really appreciate you being here with me and sharing the space with me. As always, I really appreciate all the, the emails and the comments that I get, uh, the beautiful reviews. So whatever you can do to help spread the word and to contribute in whatever ways you have for a greater education about us becoming more mature and taking charge of our mental health, coming back into our smaller social circles, our small learning communities, our families, and ourselves who we are by ourselves when nobody else is around, who we are with people who can't do anything for us instead of it always being a transaction of attention, which is what I think happens a lot online, and who we are as a support and a receiver of support from people in our life. So thank you as always for joining me. And I hope you will subscribe to my website, stephaniefay.com. And there will be some newsletters coming out and some updates about uh, learning events that I'll be having as well. So thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode.